Greetings and welcome to season two of What Happened to That Guy, a podcast about former Baltimore Ravens and life after the NFL. I'm your host, John Eisenberg. You may have read some of my opinion columns and game analysis on the Ravens website and app. I've also authored 10 books and I wrote for years for the Baltimore Sun way back in the day. This podcast debuted a year ago, and if you listen to season one, which featured episodes on Peter Bulware, Kyle Bowler, Trevor Price, and several other former Ravens, I appreciate it. Thank you for coming back. Season one was an eye-opening experience for me as I spoke to players about what happens to them when the cheering stops. I knew that some guys moved easily into amazing second acts, and others struggled to find their footing. But I was surprised to hear that they all experience a dramatic jolt of sorts, one that they admit could almost bring them to their knees if they weren't careful. You can understand it. All they've ever been are football players, and now they aren't. Did they prepare for the transition emotionally and financially? Are they at peace with how their careers ended? Or are they walking away with unresolved issues that might haunt them? The answers to those questions help determine whether their path forward is smooth, rocky, or something in between. The former Ravens I featured last year provided a good cross-section of outcomes, and I'm hoping to achieve that again this year. I took my time selecting the former players I wanted to feature. The list of possibilities is nothing short of fantastic. There are over a thousand former Ravens roaming the planet now. Many have great stories to tell. I'm going to keep the lid on who you'll hear about down the line because, I mean, I mean, you have to have some surprises in life, right? But I will tell you that almost every episode is influenced to some degree by the hellacious coronavirus pandemic we're all living through, as well as the broader awareness and acceptance of systemic racism in our culture, which the Ravens have fully embraced as an organization. It's hard to talk to anyone these days, including former football players, without exploring these subjects. So here we go. When I originally decided to do a podcast about former Ravens and what they're doing, several media colleagues, not just one, several colleagues said to me, okay, so you're starting with Jason Brown, and then who will you do? Brown was an offensive lineman for the Ravens from 2005 through 2008. Not that well known, but his post-football life is so unique that the National TV Network News has reported on it. Jason has been profiled on the CBS Evening News, the NBC Nightly News, On the Road with Steve Hartman. Finally tonight, once you've made it to the big time, why would you ever want to go back down to the farm? Steve Hartman found the answer on the road. At one point, number 60, Jason Brown was one of the best centers in the NFL. At one point, he had a five-year, $37 million contract with the St. Louis Rams. And at one point, he decided it was all meaningless and just walked away from football. Somehow, I didn't get to Jason during season one of What Happened to That Guy. My bad, for sure. But I'm rectifying that now. I suggest you stay with me here and listen to Jason's truly one-of-a-kind tale, which he tells so well. It begins on a specific day, May 5th, 2010. It's Jason's 27th birthday. Try and picture him. He's a big, 
burly NFL lineman, a starting center, with a bright smile and gentle nature. The Ravens had drafted him five years earlier out of the University of North Carolina. He broke into the lineup in 2007, and then he started at center in 2008 on a Ravens team that reached the AFC title game under then-first-year head coach John Harbaugh. I spoke to Harbaugh's predecessor, Brian Billick, about Jason. Billick coached him for three years. Jason was always, uh, he was just a nice kid. You know, he came in and, you know, offensive linemen, the, the temperament versus defense linemen and maybe some other players. And, you know, had to learn what it was to be a pro. Uh, had to kind of work himself into pro shape. He was a big athletic kid, but needed to form himself up a little bit. Uh, smart kid. Jason's hard work paid off after the 2008 season when he became a free agent and cashed in, signing with the St. Louis Rams, a five-year, $37.5 million contract with $20 million guaranteed. Jason left Baltimore and the Ravens, moved to St. Louis, and started every game for the Rams in 2009. He was a leader there. He'd played and won with Ed Reed, Ray Lewis, Jonathan Ogden, but months after that first season in St. Louis, on the day he turned 27, he woke up and everything changed. I really started to think about uh, life a little bit more uh, because 27 is the same age that my older brother was when he was serving our country in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so he was seven years older than I. Um, he, he had passed uh, back in 2003 uh, when I was still at, at UNC Chapel Hill playing football for, for Carolina. So. Seven years that had passed, and when I woke up that morning, it was my birthday, and I looked in the mirror in that big mansion that I purchased, one of those MTV-style cribs in St. Louis, I didn't like what I saw. I should have been happy because it was my birthday. I'm a millionaire many times over, and guess what? I, I was convicted. I was challenged as a man. He couldn't stop thinking about his older brother, Ducey who had made a career out of being in the military, but then died in Iraq when a mortar shell hit his battalion. My brother, he wears a size 14 shoe. And I wear a size 16 shoe, and guess what? I couldn't feel his shoes. I couldn't walk a mile in his shoes. And a lot of people say that we look alike, especially um, when we smile. And, and I saw his reflection look back at me in, in the mirror, and here's what he said to me is, Jason, what are you doing with your life that, that's so special? What are you doing with your life that's so awesome? And I had no answer. Suddenly, the goal he'd always shot for, playing in the NFL, didn't seem so important. He was doing well for himself and his wife, supporting a lavish lifestyle. But what was he doing for others, for the greater good? He kept playing for the Rams in 2010 and 2011, while he quietly pondered these questions. But football slowly began to recede from its prime position on his list of priorities, partly because, he now admits, the Rams just weren't very good. I will tell you one thing. At Baltimore, very competitive atmosphere. Man, just an awesome city. And you knew that you had a, a chance to make it to the playoffs every single year. You just didn't know how far you, uh, you were going to make it in the playoffs. When I got to St. Louis, it was not the greatest show on turf anymore. Actually, it was about the worst show on turf. And, you know, when you have, you know, the first overall draft pick, 
second overall draft pick, you know, you know, several years in a row, that that's not a good thing. Okay, that that means you were about dead last in the league. But yet, I still try to bring my my positive attitude and and, and leadership, you know, there. But man, that competitive spirit that we had in Baltimore, led by by Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, of course, the the Hall of Famers that that we know right now, just it, it just was not there. Man, I, I'm so thankful, and, and all of the fans in Baltimore should be so so thankful <laughs> that you all have not experienced like some really really horrible depressing years, you know, like that. Man, it. It will take the fun out of football. Yes, it will. He reached a crossroads in the spring of 2012, two years after that fateful day when he looked in the mirror and didn't like what he saw. The Rams had cut him. His big salary no longer fit under their salary cap. Jason was a free agent again, and several teams wanted to sign him, including the Ravens. It was a lovely situation that any football player would want to be in receiving multi-multi-million dollar offers to play in the NFL. But Jason, who is deeply religious, had come to believe that something else was in store for him. I shared with my agent, I said, look, if the Rams release me, more than likely I'm going to hang up my cleats. And he was like, look, Jason, don't tell anyone you know that, all right? You, know, you have several teams that they still want to sign to a long-term deal. So it wasn't just Baltimore, it was the Carolina Panthers, the San Francisco 49ers could, could have gone out there and, and played for Jim, you know, Harbaugh. <laughs> and so I kept all three teams on the hook for as long as possible, but still knowing that, that God was calling me to be a farmer back in North Carolina and, and to start my ministry of, of what we have right now. You heard that right. He had decided he was going to become a farmer. A farmer. Jason didn't know the first thing about it. He'd studied interpersonal communications in college. He'd never put a shovel in the ground, but God was calling him to do it. That's what he told Harbaugh when they spoke on the phone during free agency in that spring of 2012. Harbaugh wanted to know if Jason was going to re-sign with the Ravens. Jason ended up reflecting on the Bible story of Jonah and the whale, in which the prophet Jonah is punished for disobeying God's order. He boards a ship that gets caught in a storm, and then he gets tossed overboard and ends up in the belly of a whale. I called up John, and he said, hey, Jason, what's going on? The draft is coming up in a couple of weeks. You know, What, what are you going to do? We, we need to know what's on your mind. And, and I said, Coach, um, I'd love to come play for you. I still got a lot left in the tank, and, and I'm honored. I, I thank you for the opportunity. But um, God is calling me away from football right now. And I said, if I came to play for you, I fear that that God would punish me the same way that he punished Jonah. Um, and I said, Coach, it, it wasn't just uh, Jonah that suffered. I said, it was everyone on that ship. And I said, I don't think you would want me on your team under those circumstances. And there was an awkward silence over the phone for about 10 seconds. And, and then John said, uh... Well, I appreciate your honesty and, you know, good luck with your, you know, your career post football. It's like, what, I mean, what, what was he going to say? You, you know what I mean? And, and also what, what young kid is going to tell a, a head NFL coach that, yeah, coach, um, I, I can't come and play for you because uh, I got to go be a farmer. He walked away from football 
walked away from the millions of dollars he was being offered, walked away and bought a thousand acre farm in eastern North Carolina, moved his wife and kids there, put a shovel in the ground and said, okay, now what? How in the world do I become a farmer? So it started with YouTube, right? Yeah. I, I get a lot of laughs and a lot of chuckles when when I tell people, yes, I started learning farming from watching videos on YouTube. And that is uh, a part that came natural. As football players, we watch hours and hours of, of film every single day. Uh, we break down what we see, and then we, we emulate it and, and transfer it over to the football field. And so it came natural for me to watch hours and hours of YouTube videos and break it down you know, take my notes and then transfer it over to the farm field. Um, but when I started sharing that, that with people, uh, especially our local uh, ag extension agents, uh, they said, Jason, don't you know that there's people out here that can help you? Like we care about your success, just like you had coaches um, when you played football. We're farm coaches. And I was like, oh, really? I said, well, that's awesome because I need a coach. All right. I need a couple coaches. That's right. So then the, the local farmer started helping you out. I mean, I assume that's got to be the best way to learn. Yeah, man, I just received overwhelming support from uh, a lot of the, the local farmers as well. And, and so instead of people looking at me and, and pointing the finger and laughing and say, ah, look at this dumb football player. He thinks he's going to be able to come out here and 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 do what we've been doing uh, our whole lives, right? But you know what? They they show compassion, and uh, they they really pulled me out, uh, under their wings, uh, showed me the ropes, told me a, a lot of things not to do, uh, a lot of costly mistakes that that I could have made, you know, early on. But at the same time, you know, farming people have been doing it for thousands of years. He called his place First Fruits Farm, and set out to grow sweet potatoes and blueberries. North Carolina being the sweet potato capital of the world. It was, and still is, a one-man operation in terms of full-time staff. First Fruits has never had a field manager or employee farm hands. There's just Jason, 300-pound Jason, down on his knees, planting, nurturing, growing, driving a tractor, harvesting. Fortunately, he gets a lot of help from volunteers, hundreds of them especially during harvest season. He had started a ministry when he played for the Ravens. Wisdom for Life, he called it. And he has revived it on the farm. Volunteers sign up to come to First Fruits, usually soon after sunup. They gather, Jason offers a sermon before setting them loose in the fields with a lot of help, a lot of prayer, and a whole lot of hard work. The farm has produced tens of thousands of pounds of sweet potatoes every year for the past seven years. More than a million pounds, all told. And here's where the story becomes truly special. Because Jason never intended to feed his family with the food he grew. He gives it away, all of it, to food pantries, soup kitchens, churches, anywhere there's a need. You know, my mother asked me, she said, Jason, you know, when you retire, uh, I know you're talking about, you know, your ministry is starting a church. She said, is it going to be a church in the traditional sense? And I said, no, Mom. I said, you know, there's, there's um, you know, th these brick-and-mortar churches, you know, on, on every single corner. But but yet, you know, they're, they're really not helping, you know, the, the people in the community. I said, if we're going to do something, 
it's going to be like Jesus trying to meet people's immediate needs first. And towards the end of my football career, God, he really shared with me that there was a, a, a big focus on, on hunger and, and feeding his people, you know, helping to feed uh, our local communities. And I tried to stray uh, away, uh, you know, from, I said, there's farms all around us. You know, there's John Deere tractors all, all around us here in the South. You know, why is there still hunger? And when I took a closer look, I saw the food insecurity that, that plagues uh, so many different states. Uh, North Carolina uh, being uh, ranked the 10th in the nation as far as food insecurity. And, and so by the statistics, those numbers mean that one in five children here in North Carolina don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Some counties, it's as high as one in four children. And so even though we're surrounded by a lot of agriculture, you look at what's being grown and you see a lot of tobacco, cotton, industrial corn, soybeans, and none of those things can people harvest out of those fields and prepare and make a meal for themselves, you know, that evening. That also causes a lot of food deserts. If there's an area for, you know, for, for ministry, for a church to be founded where, where people can really make a difference, that's wisdom for life and what we do here at First Fruits Farm. And so we do not offer regular church services, uh, not indoors, but what we do offer is regular worship services outdoors in our, in our fields, harvesting, cultivating, and tending to the crops. And so every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday morning, we'll have a faithful group of volunteers that come out. I'll give them a, a, a mini sermonette. We'll pray over the farm and the crops, and then I'll send them out. Uh, we'll go out there. We, we will work and labor and love for a few hours, you know, harvest, you know, the, the awesome crops out there in the fields, and then distribute to the local food banks, soup kitchens, and, and churches. It's making a difference because you're giving the best part of yourself, and, and that's your heart. These days, Jason's football career almost seems like it's a chapter from someone else's life. He does keep up with a few former teammates, like Tony Pachos, the former offensive lineman for the Ravens and Browns, now an attorney. But actually watch football? Jason doesn't have time for that. To be honest, turning on my television and watching a three-hour game is a luxury that I don't have. There, there's been times where I picked up the TV remote to turn on the television, and I told my wife, we haven't turned on the TV in more than two weeks. Honestly, it's like you, like you don't miss it. And then also at the same time, there's certain things out there that eh, you might not care to miss, <laughs> right? I, I, I remember uh, it was back in 2016, I think going on 2017, Tony Pasho's. Yeah, yeah. The the big Greek. He and I would definitely keep up with one another. He would text me and call me. He was like, "Man, do you see what's going on in the news right now?" I'm like, "No, what's going on, man? You you didn't see what Trump tweeted?" He was like, "You don't know what's going on with Russia?" I'm like, "Dude, I got a farm to tend to. All right, nobody's gonna come and help me sow these seeds or you know get these crops out of the ground. It's like somebody's got to get it done. I'm working harder now." than I ever did, you know, preparing and, and training 
um, you know, for, for the NFL. Now, I might not be going up against Kaloti Nada, all right, in practice every single day, uh, but I, I have had to herd some of my cows, okay? Now, let me tell you this. I have some 1,000-pound, you know, cows out here that are just as athletic as a Hall of Fame running back. And one day, they had their corral right behind them. The gate was open. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to lead them in with a bucket of sweet feed. I'm going to be a cowboy, okay? I'm an offensive lineman. You know, I can stop this big cow from getting past me, right? And this big cow, I say about 500 pounds. I said, yeah. You know what? If I can take on a big D tackle, this calf is not getting past me. And this calf gave me the head fake in one direction, the head fake in the opposite direction, and broke my ankles. Like, I was down to the ground, like, so fast. And I was like, are you serious? Like, I I was so glad nobody was around to witness this because (laughs) it it was a very humbling and and embarrassing moment at the same time. And I I have countless uh, of those those humbling stories out out here on the farm. It's just a different walk of life. Sounds like somebody needs to sign that cow. Yes. (laughs) You know, the cows are not big and slow, man. They're, They're very athletic. So your day, uh, you know, you and your wife have five children. Uh, your day begins early, I take it. You know, what's a typical day? Oh, yes. I'm up at 5 a.m. every single morning, seated at the table with my children for devotion and discipleship. And I'm out the door by 6 a.m. Uh, because it's so nice and cool in the morning. I'll skip breakfast, put in a full six hours uh, outdoors so that I'm, I'm done by lunchtime at, at noon. Uh, to take a break, you know, come back in, take a shower. And then if I need to do some tractor work, that's that, That's when I'll get into my tractor and, and ride around. Uh, it's got a nice air-conditioned cab, uh, and that that's kind of like film study, you know, for me. After you finish all your outdoor stuff, uh, you, you can come back and still get in about another, you know, three or four hours, you know, doing that in the afternoon. But it's, it's sun up till sundown uh, just about every day, especially in the growing season. Jason has zero regrets. He has never feared, not for one second, that walking away from football was the wrong thing to do. This year's horrific coronavirus pandemic and the accompanying economic meltdown have only strengthened his conviction. Millions of people are unemployed, vulnerable, in desperate need of life's basic necessities, starting with food on the table, which Jason produces. Here's the revelation that, that God had shared with me uh, before I finished playing football is that there was going to be a famine in, in the land, that people were going to be in need and, and people were going to be hungry, that there's going to be shortages of food. And for several years now, we've been planning and, and preparing and sowing our, our regular crops and faith, not knowing exactly you know when we're going to be called into action, but that time is right now. There's 40 million people uh, unemployed in our nation right now. You know, a, a lot of food uh, processing plants are, are shut down. There are ripples being sent all throughout our food system. And, and yes, the, those statistics that I shared with you earlier about food insecurity, they're much worse right now. And so th- this is a time where, where yes, you know, we're, we're activated. First Fruits Farm, we're, we're called into action to go uh, uh, above and beyond what we normally do and what we normally grow, but at the same time, you know, to be a beacon of light to our community and say, 
every little bit helps. It's a time of pessimism for some people. It's tough times. You know, are are you optimistic? Brother, I I am so encouraged right now, more so than I ever have before. And that is in light of the protesting and the riots that are going on all around our country. Change is, is going to come one of two ways. Change is going to come through motivation or it's going to come through desperation. A lot of people are, are hurting right now, and I see the hurt and I see the pain. But, but guess what? It's an opportunity for us to love on our neighbors. It's an opportunity for, for us to stick a hand out and give people a, a hand up um, at, at the same time. It, it's an opportunity for now for healing to take place. And guess what? When a person heals, yeah, there, there might be a scab over that wound, but it's going to get stronger, all right? And, and it's just like with my family. Anyone who's been a part of a family or a relationship, you know that there's growing pains. And, and one thing that has always taken place in, in our country, there, there, there's some horrible things that, that have taken place in the past. There's still some horrible things that are, that are going on right now, but it's still growing pains. Come on now. Like even, even siblings, my children, guess what? I, I've got to break up some fights every once in a while. I, I've got to, I, I remember even myself <laughs> with myself, my two older siblings. Yeah, it's a figure of speech, but yeah, sometimes it looked as though we were literally trying to kill each other. And those are growing pains, but we're family. Like, we love one another. And so one thing that every American has to look at right now is whether you're black, white, brown, race, creed, color, we're in this together. We are a nation that, yeah, it's a boiling pot. It's a melting pot of so many different people. But the example that I look at and that myself and many other athletes are calling on right now is look at all of our different sports teams out here. I don't miss the, the game of football, but if there's anything that I miss, it's my brothers. I've got my white brothers, my black brothers, my Hispanic brothers, Russian, Tongan, Samoan. Man, I, I've played with a diverse group of men from all different walks of life all different backgrounds, and you know what? We were able to come together as a family. We were able to work together in a shared common goal, and we were able to go out there and do some pretty special stuff. We, we shed blood, sweat, and tears, you know, to, together. And that wasn't just me at the NFL level. I did that when I was in college. I did that when I was in high school and in middle school. And so if, if these young kids can figure out how to do it on a sports team, then what the heck is wrong with the rest of our country? We've just got to learn how to come together in love and figure it out. Okay, that's it. The first episode of season two. You can find out more about Jason's career and his life at BaltimoreRavens.com slash what happened to that guy. He was a unique subject. And I'd like to thank him for taking the time to speak to me. Another episode of What Happened to That Guy will drop in two weeks. And they'll keep coming every other week for the rest of the 2020 season. I hope you find them interesting. If you like what you're hearing, don't hesitate to leave a five-star rating or write a review. Also, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. This podcast is part of the Baltimore Ravens Podcast Network, which also includes The Lounge, hosted by Ryan Mink and Garrett Downing. 
and new this year, Black in the NFL, hosted by my colleague, Clifton Brown. Wherever you get your podcasts, just search for the Baltimore Ravens Podcast Network, and everything will come up. Good stuff all around. This is John Eisenberg. I'll talk to you in two weeks.